Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. There should be Lamechad. There should be one people, a mixture of uh, Hivite and Jew, where Jew and Hivite are just lost in each other. That's terrifying. It's just about Dinah here. This is something much deeper. This is the loss of the nefesh Yehudi. This is the loss of the Jewish soul. This is the loss, as the national anthem says, it says, not yet, our hope is lost. This is the loss of the hope. This is the end of God's plan to have a people to make him a name. This is an unbelievable proposal, prospect for Jacob as he now sees with this prospect the total disillusion of what the French call their raison d'etre. So the raison d'etre is a very important concept because it, it literally, raison d'etre means the reason to be, the reason to be, or the reason for being, the reason for being. You know, that's challenging. That's before Jacob here, because Jacob is being challenged now with, Jacob, what is your, what is your reason for being? What is your raison d'etre? And let me ask you, someone says to you, what is your reason for being? You know, okay, what do I mean by that? What is it in your life that is so important to you that you would say, that's the reason I exist. That's my, that's my reason for being. I mean, what is it in your life that's so important that you, you'd say that? Okay, what would you say? To serve the Lord? Okay. Okay, Betsy, what would you say? It's so important to you that you'd say, this is the reason for my being. This is the reason I exist. Testimony. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, see, verse 10. Now, you look at verse 10. You tell me, what is Hamor's reason for being? What is his raison d'etre? What is it in Hamar's life that's so important that you feel that Hamar is like, this is the reason I exist? What would it be? Verse 10. The marketplace. Okay. You shall dwell with us. The land shall be before you. So what's important? Real estate, land, right? And trade, the marketplace. Get you possessions. Get you possessions therein. See, Get land, get more possessions. That's the abundance of things. Hamar would say, listen, I'm gonna tell you something. The reason for my being or my life consists in the abundance of things that I possess. That's what he's saying here. And you realize that that's true for most people today? I mean, you know, most people could say, uh, give me the Hamar badge, all right? I'll wear that. Because that's the position people take is Hamar's position. Most people today would say, the person who has the most toys wins, <laughs> you know, as it is. But what did the Lord Jesus Christ say about the person who has the most toys? He said in Luke 2.15, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the thing, in the abundance of the things which he possesses. So first of all, he starts off, he talks about the Hamar position. He says, take heed and beware. This is personal for you. 
and say, this is a real danger for you. He calls Hamar's position to make, to make his life only consistent in the abundance of things which he possesses. He calls that covetousness. That's one of the Ten Commandments, covetousness. The Lord said that a man's reason for being does not consist, it's not about the abundance of the things that he possesses. That's not his life. And if that's a man's reason for being, then if the most important thing for a man in his life is so that he would say, this is my reason for to exist, is to amass the abundance of things, then the Lord said, there's gonna be a great loss to you. Great loss in Mark 8.36. Mark 8.36. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The loss of the soul, the loss of the nephesh, the loss of the soul, that's what God's warning to Jacob here is, is he hears Hamar talk about the soul and mix it together with the possessions in, in verse 10. Get you possessions there. And possessions, you know, Jacob's in possessions. Did I hear possessions? What's God's perspective on possessions? Man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. So God's warning to Jacob when he hears Hamar talk about the soul and possessions is, what shall profit a man if he gain the whole world and, and lose his own soul? Jacob used to be like Hamar. He used to be like Hamar, you know, looking for abundance of possessions, but something happened to him. And now Jacob limps. He's got a limp. And Jacob could say to, to Hamar, Hamar, see this limp? You know, you know why I got this limp? Because God touched me. God touched me. He could sing that. You know, shackled by a heavy burden, you know, neath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me. Now, Hamar, I'm no longer the same. <laughs> you could say that. And when the Lord touched Jacob's thigh, he's no longer the same. He's no longer like Hamar. He's no longer, he's no longer on Hamar's page. And Jacob has a new reason for being. He's got a new reason for being. He has something other than possessions. That's so important to him that we'd say, okay, this is the reason I exist. As you were saying, you know, to be a testimony, to show God's creation, to serve the Lord. And this is it. So what is the reason for Israel's existence? You boil it down and say, okay, this is the most important thing that really defines Israel's reason to exist. Okay, 2 Samuel 7.23 again. What nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name? What? To make him a name. And to do for you great things and terrible. That's Israel's reason for existence. If you were to say, what's the most important thing in the life of this people, in the life of the, they would say, the reason the, to make him a name. That's it. That's what God said. That's your reason. That's what it is. That's what we should see as our reason. Of course, all these things you've said are making God a name. That's our reason for existing. It's just the most important things. Make him a name. Make God a name. Well, how do you do that? How do you do? How do you make God a name? <laughs> yeah. That's it. This the light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. See? See, light shines. See, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know, when we do good works, we glorify God in heaven. What kind of good works are there? Daniel 12, 3. They that be wise shall, be as, shall shine 
Light shine. Shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. When we witness about the Lord Jesus Christ, when we seek to turn others to righteousness, then we glorify God. In Psalm 86, 9, Psalm 86, 9, speaks all nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. We tell others about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We glorify God. We are bought with a price, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. We are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirits, which are God's. And it goes on in 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Do all to the glory of God. If you eat, if you drink, do all to the glory of God. And finally, we see people are, are really fulfilling their reason for being in Revelation 4.11 in heaven. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So the true Jewish soul, I, I mean, not just the Jewish soul, but the true Jewish soul is a soul that glorifies Jehovah Jesus, which is why most people we see today have been cut off from the vine of Jehovah Jesus. They've lost the true Jewish soul, and many Gentiles have been grafted into the vine of Jehovah Jesus and have gained the true Jewish soul, which is what makes it, I told you Israel's national anthem there and tried to sing it, okay, Hatikva, that makes it it's so interesting. Why? I have a friend, Orthodox lady, and she went to Orthodox Yeshiva High School. And one day in high school, she wanted to sing Hatikva. She wanted to sing the Israel's National Anthem, and which talks about the Jewish soul. And her headmaster rabbi said, you are not allowed to sing that. And my friend was, you have to know her, I know her, but she's, you know, you don't say that to my friend. So my friend was so angry, she's a little girl. So she goes into the girl's restroom and she sings it at the top of her lungs. <laughs> there, take that, you know. <laughs> you can't come in here, I'll sing it in here. Then later, she w went to the rabbi and she asked him, why wasn't I allowed to sing Hatikva? And she was told, because of the author of Hatikva, Naftali Hertz Imber. See, that was the person who wrote the uh, Israel's national anthem, Naftali Hertz Imber. And he said, he became a Christian. Okay, which means maybe the author of Israel's national anthem who wrote about the Jewish soul, he found the true Jewish soul. Yeah? when he was grafted back into the vine of Jehovah Jesus. And he became a literal Jew for Jesus. <laughs> now it says in verse 6 that Hamar, he came out to commune with Jacob. It's important to see this trouble that's coming to Jacob here, how it's really going to hit him from four different angles. I mean, first in verse 5, you know, Jacob, he's under pressure because uh, someone or some group of people come to him and confront him with this news that his daughter's been defiled. So first he's on the pressure here with thinking about, well, you know, what am I going to do to get my daughter back who's been kidnapped, you know, by the Hivites? And so he's concerned, Jacob is concerned, about his own vulnerability. And you see that in the last verse 30 here. You see that? Like, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the being... I being few in number, they shall gather together against me and slay me, and I'll be destroyed in my, I and my house. So he's worried, and he's thinking, I got to avoid war, you know, with the Hivites. 
So this is pressure on him. And, and so Jacob, in verse 5, is trying to deal with this issue of Dinah and avoiding war. The next wave of pressure comes and it hits him as Hamor comes, the father of the offender, and he's talking to Jacob about soul and possessions. And he, said, he, he says nothing about the soul of Dinah. It's only about the soul of his son. And, and all Jacob can think of is now, I'm just going to get all entangled now in wrong marriages. So under this pressure, uh, Jacob is feeling, Hamor just leans on him for a decision. You know, I pray, verse 8, I pray you, give her him to, to wife. He's got this pressure now. Then in verse 7 comes this next wave of pressure on Jacob, uh, which is her son's. They're hot. They're angry. They have a fanatical thirst for revenge. So this puts pressure on Jacob. How am I going to calm my sons down from further wrong? And then in verse 11, steps forward the actual offender himself, Shechem. And all Jacob hears from him is this, whatever it costs, I'll pay it. You know, verse 12. But give me the damsel to wife. So now if it wasn't graphic enough for him, here Jacob's seeing the same lustful eagerness that he used to defile his daughter and kidnap her, and now he's got it right in his face. And this driving lust is right there. Okay, so we can imagine tremendous pressure on four angles coming to Jacob. He's got the pressure of the shock of the news, the pressure of Haman saying, just agree, the uncontrolled anger of his sons and his daughter, and now he's got this lustful eagerness of the offender right in his face. All this pressure on him. Can you feel that? You feel that what that would be like? And you know, you start out your day, you've got everything planned, you know, everything, you know, expecting to have everything under control, and all of a sudden, bam, trouble comes with such a force that you just felt your internal strength, your confidence just drain right out of you like a big puddle in front of you. And so here, Jacob, you know, what do you do? What do you do when you're in Jacob's situation? Psalm 61. Psalm 61, one through four. Just picture, oh, the Jacob that you would have done this. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. So when times come to us, like we see Jacob in, there's four steps to take from this psalm, Psalm 61. First, will I cry unto thee? Immediate prayer. We cannot handle the situation alone. We are hurt. We're under pressure to make decisions. We don't know what to do. You know, Jacob had to decide how he's going to rescue Dinah from the fanatical hands of Shechem. Jacob has to decide what to tell Hamor. Jacob has to decide how to calm his sons down. Jacob has to decide what to say to Shechem. This Psalm 61, 2, when my heart is overwhelmed. So the first step is to cry to God for help. It's so important to ask God for help. You know, that's not automatic. You know, know, God's not on, on, on auto dial. You know, just, well, push the button and then he'll know. No, God has to be asked from the depths of the heart. He has to be cried to. And the problem is we don't do that. And James says, you know why you don't have? You have not because you ask not. Just ask. So when we don't ask God for help, oftentimes God says, well, you know, phone hasn't rung here, so I guess, you know, I'll wait. And he's not asking for my help, which maybe means that, you know, okay, he thinks he can handle this on his own. So let's see what's going to happen. This ought to be good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. so the first step 
when our hearts are just overwhelmed, cry out to God, call. Call unto me in the day of trouble, God says. The second step in Psalm 61 is to ask God, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And he says, lead me to the rock is an acknowledgement. I can't do this. I need a rock higher than I. I don't have what it takes. That's very honest. See? And so when you say, lead me to the rock that's higher than I, that sets the stage for help. To call God the rock that is higher than I is to confess that I'm not able to handle the situation. I need God who's higher than I. And the help to come, we have to deal with our own pride. Our own pride is what stands in the way of us going to God. So when you say, you know, God is the rock that's higher than I, that's like taking that fire extinguisher there on our pride and just putting out the flames. You know, I want to go to the rock that's higher than I. Next step, realize we have an eternal destiny. So let's start doing it now. Verse four, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. That's where I'm gonna be. Our eternal place in thy tabernacle forever in the presence of the Lord. So we should be arranging our lives to be in that tabernacle now, starting off our day, Bible before breakfast, so that throughout our day we can set this place, set the tent of the tabernacle up in the morning and then go in there throughout the day. And he says in verse four, I will trust in the covert of thy wings. That's a wonderful picture. That's a picture, you know, here's a vulnerable little bird and he's in his nest and the little bird knows, boy, there just must be insurmountable dangers outside there. Maybe he thinks about it, I don't know. But anyway, there in his nest, the mother bird comes, she spreads her wings over the little bird and the little bird looks up and the little bird looks up and all it sees is the wings and, he's, and he's not, he doesn't worry about the trouble outside. But the little bird says, It says the words of verse four, I will trust in the covert of thy wings. So he says, so why are we to see? Why are we to see? There's no trouble and danger when God protects us under his protection. And he speaks about this, the protection of his wings. As a matter of fact, in the beginning there, he says, this is what I did when I came and delivered you out of Egypt, Israel. He said, I came in like an eagle. In Exodus 19.4, Exodus 19.4, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that's what Boaz told Ruth. Boaz told Ruth in Ruth 2.12, when the Lord should recompense her, the Lord should give her a reward. Why? Because she, under whose wings thou art come to trust, the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. And then David speaks oftentimes in the Psalms, not only about the wings, but the shadow of the wings. He says in Psalm 63, 7, for example, Psalm 63, 7, because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. That, that's a precious picture also of ourselves. We're going through our day, we, are, we should see ourselves, the shadow. We should say to ourselves, the shadow, the shadow. The shadow of God's wings. I'm under the shadow of God's wings. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because in this Psalm, Psalm 61 here, when David is talking about God's tabernacle, and then he's talking about wings. You say, oh yeah, there are wings in the tabernacle for God, right? By the way, there are wings in there in Exodus 25, 20. The cherubim, the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. See, the mercy seat, that's where God spoke with man. It was, and over that mercy seat were the wings of the cherubim, which shows, it says, well, you come to meet with me, I got a special protection for you. I got wings. 
They're going to be right over that place. Nothing can penetrate through those protecting wings over the mercy seat. And so when we're in the deepest trouble, like Jacob, then it's the time to get to the mercy seat and count on the wings. But we got to go to the mercy seat. That's not automatic. You know, there's not a moving escalator that's going to take us there. <laughs> we got to walk. We got to go to the tabernacle and then get to the mercy seat and then rely on the wings. Now, we read the description here of the sons of Jacob when we read here in verse 7 that, that says they came out of the field. They heard it. The men were grieved. They were wroth. They were, they were really angry. And they burned with anger. They burned with anger, you know. In Arab countries today, there is a greater anger over the seduction of a daughter or a sister than over a wife that gets seduced and commits adultery. Why? Because they say, we can divorce the adulterous wife. But the sister and the daughter, she always remains a sister and a daughter. So this was serious. And then they said, okay, they wrought folly in Israel, they said that. They wrought folly in Israel. Oh, that's the same word that Tamar said to Amnon as, as he was going to defile her. And in 2 Samuel 13, 12, 2 Samuel 13, 12, and she answered him saying, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. Same words that they used. It's significant that the sons of Jacob here, they didn't say in verse 7 that he had wrought folly in Jacob. They said he wrought folly in Israel, which shows this is something now, because now it shows for the first time there's this certain embracing, a certain embracing of the name of Israel. It's it's an identity now. And this is the first time the name Israel is used to refer to the family, not just Jacob. But now it has become a national designation. And it's a special name. And see now in the family, this is a name that comes from God. This is a name that's associated with God. This is a name that is a calling to a higher level. Above the common, as was in Canaan, someone might lightly have lion with this woman. That's the common. This is a name that's above that. It's now recognized a very special name And along with that comes a very special recognition of a calling to be different from the surrounding people. Not to engage in what they engage in. Be set apart. That's important for us to see because we have a special name. The Lord Jesus Christ is a special name for us. And when we name the name of Christ, that tells us you have a calling to not be like the common. See, in 2 Timothy 2.19, 2 Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows that them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In Romans 12, 9, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. In many verses, many verses in the Bible that refer to that. Well, let's stop here, and next week we'll continue. Father, thank you so much for, as we read these horrible things that happen here, that we we'll go on to see there's forgiveness with God and all the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the cleansing of God that flows from the fountain. And we pray that soon, Lord, that that fountain would be open for the house of David and that for sin and uncleanness. Thank you, Lord, for what you've revealed to us in this chapter in Jesus' name. Amen.
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Do you believe God created the heavens and the earth? Then come celebrate Creation Day on Saturday, November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. This is a Christian family festival event with games, rides, contest prizes, fair food, petting zoos, animal shows, super science experiments for kids, plus life-size dinosaurs at our brand new Dinosaur Gardens exhibit, plus world-renowned speakers, Ray Comfort, Tom Cantor, Eric Hoven, Jay Siegert, and more. Free admission to the museum and all speaking engagements are free for your family and the entire church family. The Creation Earth History Museum is located off Highway 67 and Woodside Avenue North in Santee next to the Santee Drive-In. Bring your family and friends Saturday, November 5th and strengthen your faith at Creation Day, San Diego's Christian Family Festival event. For more information, call 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104 or creationsd.org creationsd.org.